Good morning. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct our Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. China's spectacular growth is transforming the world and uh, China itself, and there's no doubt that this growth is spectacular. Around 9% per year for about three decades, uh, this has been unprecedented uh, in world history, both in its scope and in its speed. Since the late 1970s, China has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It has created thriving cities and industries uh, that are connected to the world, and in the process, it's leading to vast social changes and changes in the way that the government itself uh, creates policies. Its economic weight and its example is influencing the rest of Asia, including that other giant, India, which uh, started its own process of economic reforms in the early 90s with similar growth outcomes since then. But rapid growth from extreme poverty is rarely a smooth process. And the more that China moves in the direction of the market, the more the inherent tensions between uh, central planning and the market system become apparent. I think that nowhere is it more visible in China than with regard to Chinese farmers' land rights. And as China modernizes, the gap between the rural and the urban Chinese uh, have, has grown in a way that is largely attributable to government policies and the actions of Chinese officials. It turns out that uh, in China, a country that is still predominantly rural and uh, that is governed by a party which came to power in the name of Chinese peasants, the rights of Chinese farmers to their lands are inferior to the rights uh, that exist in urban areas, and uh, those rights are regularly violated. China has undertaken great reforms, including the decollectivization of farms that has vastly benefited all Chinese. But the lack of, of legal security uh, that still exists in the countryside uh, is, uh, it presents an enormous challenge, both a social and economic challenge to, to China. But it also presents a great opportunity uh, for China if it wishes to become a successful modern country. Among those who have done some, uh, some of the most work on this uh, issue uh, is the Rural Development Institute, whose scholars are with us today and who I'm pleased to host. The RDI, the Rural Development Institute, has been working on issues of land rights around the world for some four decades, and in recent years has been conducting extensive surveys of uh, Chinese farmers' land rights uh, throughout the, the country. Uh, the paper that we published based on one of those surveys uh, recently, we published a paper on, uh, by uh, both, uh, both of our speakers today about a year and a half ago, is available in case you haven't picked it up uh, already. And I think it's a fine paper showing the potential, this vast unmet potential uh, of China. Uh, their findings are critical to uh, successful Chinese uh, development. And uh, their policies on uh, respecting property rights in the countryside would help resolve, as I say, not only economic but uh, social uh, tensions, such as peasant protests and uh, some of the social disruptions that we've seen uh, reported in the press and that are often mischaracterized in the Western press as 
the result of the market system rather than the lack of institutions that uh, exist in any modern market system. So I'm very pleased to, to be able to introduce our, both of our speakers, and our first speaker will be Roy uh, Prosterman. He is the founder and the chairman emeritus of the Rural Development Institute. He is also an emeritus professor of law at uh, uh, University of Washington and uh, has worked on legal uh, and property issues uh, since the 50s and 60s. So he's been around quite a long time working on, on these issues. Uh, his focus is on legal issues of land reform, development, and international and property law. Uh, he is the author or co-author of several books, including Land Reform and Democratic Development, Agrarian Reform and Grassroots Development, and has done field work in 27 uh, countries around the world. Uh, he has uh, uh, been one of these people who has... Uh, who for a long time has seen the issue of, of property and land rights uh, in a way that uh, I would say only in, in recent years, maybe in recent uh, maybe the past 10 or 20 years, has become uh, a more fashionable field of, of, of research. So uh, please help me welcome uh, Roy Prosterman. I appear to have brought uh, some of our Seattle weather with me. Uh, I'm delighted that uh, so many of you have uh, braved uh, the rain and uh, come. Um, hopefully this will work. Uh, Secure long-term land rights are fundamental for the roughly half of the world's population that continues to make its living directly uh, from the land. Uh, the benefits of, uh, of secure land rights uh, include uh, investment in the land. You won't invest in land if you think you may not be on that same piece of land uh, next month or next year. Uh, it means increased and diversified production uh, achieved through such investment. Uh, the growth of income as a consequence of that increased and diversified production uh, and much higher levels of consumption of goods and services by the rural population. Um, a very interesting success story across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, Taiwan carried out a major land reform program uh, after Chiang Kai-shek left the, uh, the mainland, and one reason that he lost the mainland was uh, that he failed to address the land-based grievances uh, of the peasantry. Uh, but when Taiwan did carry out a major land reform in the decade after that, uh, rice yields uh, jumped by 60%, uh, farm incomes increased by 150%. And that uh, 
those secure land rights uh, enabled the transformation of the whole rural economy. We did, we've done several rounds of rural field work in Taiwan, the most recent in the year 2000. We found uh, every farmer we interviewed had a car. Uh, almost every farmer had a computer. Almost every farmer uh, had investments on the stock market. Uh, they all had private life insurance policies. Uh, they had uh, nearly all flown off the island one or more times in a jet airplane uh, for visiting or business. Uh, and they, uh, they lived in very nice, solid brick houses with excellent furniture and actually a much nicer television than I currently own. Uh, it was uh, quite remarkable, and these were on very small farms. Uh, South Korea and Japan enjoyed uh, similar uh, successes in their countrysides following World War II. In fact, I would say that rural transformation led growth in each of those instances, Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea, probably preceded by a decade or more uh, any significant export-led growth in those societies. Um, China uh, has 750 million people living on the mainland. Uh, it's close to 60 percent of their population, still only a minority, uh, is urban. And the prosperity is very largely urban. The chart you see uh, indicates the gap between that higher line that represents per capita urban income and the dotted red line uh, lower down, much lower down, that represents per capita rural uh, income, and that's reflected in a number of, of different ways in terms of the uh, <clears throat> lagging rural sector, not only in terms of income, but life expectancy, infant mortality, literacy, likelihood of going to college, uh, on down a, uh, a long list. To briefly summarize the, the land history in China, since uh, the communists came to power, very few people still recall that from 49 to 56, they kept their original promises to the peasantry, which was to give them full private ownership. Uh, and under that system, uh, rural uh, uh, grain production increased uh, from 49 to 56 by, uh, by 70 percent, Incomes increased by 85 percent, but then, uh, maddeningly, Mao introduced uh, collective farms and then giant communes, an absolute disaster. A famine ensued that uh, resulted in uh, an estimated 30 million incremental deaths. So they geared back in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, 62 to uh, smaller village-based collectives. Uh, production recovered very slowly 
Finally, in 78, a local experiment showed what could be achieved with small family farms, and they allowed that to go nationwide. In 79 to 84, there was a mass movement to the exits on the collective farms. Uh, they, uh, they broke up almost in their entirety. We began doing uh, our field work uh, in China in 87, and by that time there were hardly any collective or state farms uh, uh, to be found. In the short term, there were very significant increases uh, in uh, farm uh, production uh, and income, but those were all through annual improvements in uh, practices. They put the fertilizer on carefully and at the right time rather than dumping it in the middle of the field, as had sometimes happened in the collective farm. They uh, carried out operations at the proper time. They looked carefully for weeds and pulled them out by hand. It was almost a gardening, <coughs> excuse me, a gardening process. <coughs> Very successful. Uh, but we were finding in our uh, interviewing as early as 87 and 88 uh, that farmers complained that the local cadre could readjust the land uh, whenever they wanted to in the name of population change, so they didn't know that they'd be on the same parcels of land from one year to the next, and that served as an almost complete disincentive to making uh, long-term uh, investments. Their rights were readjustable and short-term. The central government was uh, sensitive to this problem uh, and first introduced a policy in 93 that would give farmers 30-year land rights. Uh, it uh, then wrote it into formal law 30-year land rights to be uh, reflected in written contracts under the 1998 land management law and the 2002 uh, rural land contracting law. The 2007 property law further bolsters farmers' land rights. We, we began in 2001 doing a series of, of nationwide surveys uh, each of them covering 17 provinces and about 1,700 households. Uh, the uh, colored-in areas on the map, the 17 survey provinces, contain close to 90% of the total rural population. So the results are fairly significant and valid uh, in terms of the, uh, of the entire country, not only the... Uh, the 17 provinces. Um, a number of basic findings from the most recent survey, and that will be the focus of the rest of my remarks, uh, the results of that 2008, uh, July 2008, wanted to get it finished before the Olympics, uh, the July 2008 survey Results. Uh, importantly, uh, the issuance of basic documentation of farmers' land rights uh, is still far from 
complete a decade after the 1998 uh, land management law. Uh, close to three out of five rural households have documents, but uh, over two households out of five still lack uh, documents. And also we found that on the issued documentation, uh, although the, the woman is supposed to be a, an equal right holder, fewer than 10% of wives uh, have their names on the uh, rights document. Still the problem of uh, readjustment. What we found on this uh, survey was that about uh, oh, a little over a third of, of villages, 34% of villages, have carried out readjustments of farmers' land holdings uh, since this so-called second round of contracting began. Uh, the vast majority of those are illegal, but slightly, uh, even somewhat encouraging, uh, is that the figure, the corresponding figure in the 2001 survey was 18 percent, the 2005 survey was 30 percent, now in 2008, 34 percent. The incidence of new illegal readjustment seems to be uh, slowing substantially. Uh, another major uh, impediment to farmer security, this is the one that tends to figure in most of the media coverage of rural China in the U.S. and the Western media, that is land takings for non-agricultural purposes. Uh, almost three out of ten of the villages had experienced the land taking uh, the per hectare compensation paid to the collective was about six times what the actual land-losing farmers received. Not surprisingly, more than two-thirds of the farmers were dissatisfied with the compensation, but they found there was very little they could do about it. Occasionally, they tried to take it to court or go through some administrative process, but with very little success. Um, there's generally spotty awareness of, uh, of, of the rights. The laws on the books are pretty good, but awareness of the good laws and policies uh, is far from consistent. Over 60%, 64% now, have heard of the 2002 Rural Land contracting law. Fewer than two out of five have heard of the campaign to restrict takings for non-agricultural purposes. Uh, there is an emerging land market. It's, it's still small. About 15 percent of farmers have transferred out their land rights. Uh, fewer than two out of five of those have involved compensation. But for those that do involve compensation, the levels, such as annual rent levels, uh, are substantially higher than they were in 2005. And a number of these are multi-year transfers, even transfers of the entire remainder of the 30-year term. If you capitalize the rents, I think this is one of the more significant findings of the survey. If you capitalize the flow of rents, 
taking the median amount of rent for these compensated transfers, uh, if you capitalize it at 5%, it would suggest a value equivalent to about $10,700 per hectare, uh, fairly comparable to the value of uh, rice land in the densely populated uh, Asian societies generally. Uh, and uh, potentially suggesting if you if you expand that to the entire arable land base, a potential market value of some one point three uh, trillion dollars, uh, even in today's uh, setting, a fairly significant uh, uh, figure. Uh, these are uh, encouraging but uh, still very early signs of dead capital coming importantly to life. Dead capital, of course, the phrase used by Hernando de Soto, uh, the Peruvian economist in his book, uh, The Mystery of Capital. Uh, when farmers have secure rights, they invest. And this is the working assumption, and it definitely turns out to be true. Uh, th these are the uh, investments calculated in terms of, uh, and I'd say about one quarter of farmers have now made long-term investments uh, in their land, and this chart shows it in terms of investments made per 100 households per year. 94 to 97 is a kind of baseline before they embodied the 30-year rights in a serious way in, in law. Uh, it was six-tenths uh, per hundred families. Uh, 98 and then the next three-year periods, uh, uh, you have uh, about more or less two per hundred making long-term investments. Then 2007 through mid-2008, it jumps to more than five. It suggests a cumulative impact for at least the substantial minority of farmers uh, who have thus far received secure land rights. Uh, we plan to go back and do follow-up research with a sample of these investments to find out what the uh, amount of the investment was, uh, to track down in greater detail the sources of the investment, and very importantly, to look at the flow of income and the profitability uh, of the investment. Uh, the correlation between such investment and possession of land documents is significant as is the correlation with local publicity on farmers' land rights. Um, and with that, uh, which is a very brief tour through the uh, basic uh, factors uh, and facts uh, uh, found, uh, I will uh, turn the podium over to my colleague, uh, who Ian will introduce. Thank you. Thanks very much. Our next speaker is Tzu Kellyang, who is a staff attorney at the Rural Development Institute. And uh, he, would you keep the, uh, sorry, would you keep the slides on, please? 
we're not done. <laughs> uh, he he uh, manages the RDI's programs in in East Asia, and specializes in in land use and real estate. Uh, he works on. Uh, he's done a lot of rural field work, and uh, is writing a number of uh, research and policy uh, papers around that. Please help me welcome Kelly Yang. Thank you. Well, uh, some basic or big messages you have heard that on the uh, problems we are suffering today in the rural China in terms of how land rights are being uh, insecure or unmarketable. Uh, several uh, solutions we have come up with, uh, especially in terms of timing today, is um, there are two major policy announcements made uh, in last October and this January. The two central policies um, made a breakthrough announcements, not only saying that farmers' land rights were only for a turn of 30 years, it will be only, but also will be uh, remain unchanged for long term. Uh, that word or characterization is moving inch closer to what we call it perpetual land rights, which is a great thing for having, because that would remove the cloud of the uncertainty. The 30 years will expire, if we look at it right now, uh, in the late uh, 2020s. And if we can make the policy uh, to extend the 30-year rights beyond that, beyond that date, it will remove great uncertainty, and it would encourage a lot of investments, not only uh, promoting agriculture, productivity, but also increase rural income. Uh, as we said, we heard here, it's, there are a lot of good laws and policies in China, but the problem is implementation. Uh, implementation is about teach or educate the farmers and of local officials what the laws are and actually have them recognized. And specifically, we have uh, six recommendations to carry out those laws and policies. Uh, the first one is to uh, allow the automatically renewal of the present 30-year term. As we just heard that the policy actually permits the uh, rights to remain unchanged for a long term, and the best way to do it, you can just to renew the 30-year terms without extending it, without changing the term, you can just renew it automatically. That would be the easiest way to do um, and we have a land management law is up for revision at the national legislation. So one good way to do it is to allow that law to write into actual language, automatic renewal, and that would actually embody the policy language. The second recommendation is to, of course, uh, end all land readjustments. Uh, currently, the law still allows a very small exception where readjustments or land relocations are permissible or legal. But today, if anything, we're talking about the secure land rights, 30 years or even perpetual land rights, there should be no readjustments at all. And if we look at all the modern 
uh, or the most productive agricultures in the world, like Taiwan, South Korea, um, they don't have such mechanism at all because farmers need that security, need that long-term security, land rights in their hands, and they can invest to produce, and they can start increase their productivity. The third uh, is about publicity. It's very simple, education, uh, awareness. Um, uh, knowledge is power, and uh, farmers need, need to understand what their rights are under the law, and they need to be empowered. Uh, it's not they don't have access to information. It's just uh, we need access, we need services, actually deliver this knowledge to the grassroots in rural China. Uh, again, uh, legal aid and education. Uh, RDI has uh, recently uh, obtained a uh, obtained funding from the World Bank to start China's first legal aid and education center uh, in Guangxi, which is in southern China. Uh, we call it Barefoot Lawyers. And uh, one of the things about Barefoot Lawyers is it's always local, it's always affordable and accessible. So those will be the services in the ground uh, at the grassroots level that help farmers to know what their rights are, and even at the time of the needs to advocate for them. Uh, the fourth uh, recommendation is to issue land documents to all farmers. Uh, our survey data shows 40% of the farm households don't have anything to prove what the rights have. And if don't don't have a piece of paper, so the officials or the government can come easily say, this doesn't belong to you, and is going to belong to the government or some developer tomorrow. So the land documents are really important in terms of not only securing the land rights, but also to promote investments. And one of the things uh, the government uh, we have uh, recommended is to set realistic goals to get documents issued. So uh, the local officials who are in charge of those issuance will be held accountable and those programs will be monitored uh, by independent uh, uh, surveys and research. And the fifth one is, of course, one of the uh, major threats to tenure security uh, in China is improve the law and the practice in land takings. Uh, the key problem is, of course, the uh, compensation standards. Uh, we have to make sure the farmers, the land-losing families, are paid fairly according to market value, and especially the payments should go directly to the land-losing farmers, not to officials, not to the collectives. And the second component of this recommendation is not only we want to increase the compensation standards, we want to make sure farmers have a say, have a role to play in the decision-making process. So they can influence, they can bargain, they can negotiate with whoever is taking the land away. The fifth one, uh, the final uh, recommendation is uh, we want to enhance the protection for women's land rights. Uh, it is customary for women's name not appearing on any do uh, official documents, uh, but the law says otherwise. Uh, women enjoy the absolutely equal land rights as, their, as the men. So we need making sure all the names are recorded in both documents. Now, I just finished my um, 
boring part of presentation. Um, so why should you care? That question is about the land rights in China. Uh, when I do field work in China every year and many times, uh, one trip I took last summer uh, was I took one of our board member. He's a senior vice president of uh, one of the largest mutual funds company in the uh, United States, in Los Angeles. Uh, he's American, and he has been traveling to Beijing and Shanghai, all the big cities all the time, but he never seen the countryside. So last summer, I... I took, he, he basically asked to say, can you show me the countryside and get me out of Beijing? And I did. We drove a car about um, 180 or 200 miles south of Beijing, uh, the province called Hebei province. Uh, we make random stops. We talk to different farmers because there's no officials with us, so we can do whatever they want. Uh, there was very uh, interesting experience, and one time we ran into a farmer, a watermelon farmer who uh, owns about two acres of land, and what he does with land is he grows watermelon. And the first thing, he saw us go into the field, and uh, he realized my company is American. And the first thing he came out of his mouth is, hey, you Americans are bad. I was saying, what are you talking about? This is the first time we met here. Um, and then he showed us to his backyard what, uh, what he means. And in his backyard, there was about a dozen bags, huge bags of American fertilizers uh, made by, I was looking, checking the label, it's made in Texas, uh, Cargill fertilizers. Uh, what he was saying is the American government is trying pushing to devaluate the Chinese currency. And what he is doing right now is he has to pay, uh, originally he was paying $30 per bag for the fertilizer, now he's paying like $40 because of the Chinese currency uh, was worth less than before. That was his complaint. So, so the, my American friend, of course, asked him, well, why don't you use just Chinese fertilizer, not why are you buying expensive American ones? Well, the farmer says, you know, I'm living very close, about three hours drive from Beijing. We have an Olympic game coming, and uh, I want to sell my watermelon in Beijing. Uh, and I tried my domestic fertilizer, the watermelon, doesn't taste good at all. But American fertilizer grown watermelon tastes much better. Uh, Okay, that makes sense. So my American friend basically said, okay, I think I thank you very much for buying the American product, but can't you charge more for your watermelon? The farmer said, of course, yes, I can do that. So that's the thing here. Um, and the story doesn't end here because I'm not talking about one Chinese farmer buying American fertilizer. Um, it's about something much, much, much larger. Uh, let me put that into context. Those are major business in terms of what they're doing in China. Starbucks, 340 stores in China. Microsoft, $700 million in revenue. Boeing, 
sold about 1,000 planes to China so far, and they are hoping to sell 3,500 more to China in the next 20 years. And the next, the final one is my favorite. Is we're talking about bailout the General Motors in Detroit. Look at this is well nobody knows about、it. the brightest spot of General Motors is in China. They have been the top car seller in China for five consecutive years, and last year they sold 1.1 million new cars. I mean Buicks.、Uh, whenever I go to China, especially Eastern China. Or which is close to the General Motors factory, all the government cars are black Buicks, four-door sedans, and they're great cars, you know. But keep in mind here, all the Starbucks stores are not in the countryside. Not a single one is in the countryside. They're all in the cities. All the people buying Microsoft, all the people traveling on plane, and all the people. Buying Buicks, they're, they're not from the countryside. The, the market America is tapping in China right now is only about ten or fifteen percent of the population,、uh, the higher classes in the cities. We have left a huge untapped pool of consumers and market players in China untouched. And this is why I want to show you this chart again here. Let me get the pointer. Ah,、uh, in nineteen in nineteen eighty, I was born and raised in rural southern China in Hunan Province, and in nineteen eighty was a landmark year for my family. Well, my family was making. According to the line,、uh, around fifty U.S. dollars a year.、Um, the landmark year was my family was able to buy a brand new bicycle and also build a new brick house. But that was in 1980. That was almost 30 years ago. And in 1984, we make that little incremental progress along the line, probably making 60 or 70 dollars along the line. We bought our first black and white TV, but if you, but all the Starbucks, all the Boeing planes, all the General Motors cars, all the Buicks are consumed by the people around there. So the problem here we have in here today is this red line represents seven hundred fifty million people. Somehow, if we can give them secure and marketable land rights, and to read this line up here, and this is not really a difficult thing to do. Look at the number here. We're only talking about eighteen, nineteen hundred dollars a year. So, if you can read that line from six hundred dollars, say, to eighteen, nineteen hundred dollars a year, and every all the numbers I just talked about, all the sales and revenues will be at least doubled for America. So that's the lesson, I guess, for everybody in this room here. So, thank you very much. And、uh, if you want to learn more, we have、uh, websites and everything、uh, for RDI. And I guess the next、um, session will be questions and answers. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. We have time for.
for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and identify yourself and your affiliation, and then wait for the microphone, and somebody will bring it to you. We'll take a question in the front, please. Gene. Uh, is this on? Yes. Gene Montgomery here. Uh, I'm curious about the size of the farms that we're talking about and whether there uh, would be any uh, uh, trend for uh, with exchangeable property rights. And you haven't said whether these were exchangeable. I assume they are since you're saying you did mention that some were transferred. Is there any idea of accumulating property so that you can operate on a more efficient uh, scale? What, are, what kind of sizes of farms are we talking about here? One threshold point is, is that of efficiency. Uh, it's somewhat surprisingly, perhaps, uh, it turns out that very small farms uh, uh, have generally higher total factor productivity and are more efficient per acre or per hectare than big farms. Uh, and especially in a setting like China, which is long on labor, short on land, and short on capital, the thing that makes the most sense is to organize farming as small labor-intensive Holdings where the farmers are very highly motivated, hence where they have, if not ownership, then very long-term and secure land rights. Whereas we're used in the U.S. still mostly family farms, but much, much larger family farms here, uh, which reflect uh, our factor endowment. We're long on land, long on capital, and short on labor. So to have a 500-acre or 1,000-acre farm with several hundred thousand dollars worth of capital equipment run by one family or perhaps two related families is, uh, makes a great deal of economic sense. Now, uh, mainland China has also, in, in the case of Japan and in South Korea and Taiwan, is at a starting point of very small Farms. The average farm size is about two-thirds uh, of a hectare, less than two acres, but very intensively farmed. Such a holding can provide the wherewithal for a very decent standard of living, quite adequate nutrition, uh, and enough uh, surplus income uh, to begin to become consumers of a range of goods and services. But what, what's likely to happen, as has happened in those other settings over uh, two generations, uh, is that gradually through land market activity, uh, those who are more interested in staying in the countryside and farming will, over time, buy out their neighbors or rent out their neighbors, uh, and their holdings will increase in size. Japan, when the land reform was carried out under MacArthur uh, in the uh, late 40s after the war, uh, was 50% agricultural. Now it's 10% agricultural, and over time, the farms have gradually expanded in size, although they're still not remotely close to the size of the farms in the U.S. But that's probably the pattern that makes sense. So it's important that farmers 
have very secure rights so that they can improve their land, invest in their land, maximize their income from the land, and also that those rights be transactable, as they are very clearly under the law, but with more information needed uh, for the farmers on, on transactability and on how to carry out those transactions, including perhaps over time the introduction of a more formal land rights registration system. We'll take another question here. Eric McVeigh, <clears throat> pardon me, Eric McVeigh, the Institute for Foreign Policy Analysis. Um, one of your slides mentioned the uh, Barefoot Lawyer Program. I'm recalling, I think it was uh, late last year, that Jim Feinerman at Georgetown University uh, wrote, I guess it was an op-ed piece, on the prosecution of uh, or the government being after the uh, lawyers who were helping uh, people who had uh, had difficulties with the government. And I'm wondering if you've encountered that and if you'd comment any further on the, uh, the luck, so to speak, of lawyers who are helping out. Um, I guess the answer is not yet. Uh, we started our operation in January uh, in Guangxi. Uh, one of the stands we take in Guangxi is, uh, well, actually the slogans we put up is we're helping the local government not to to resolve the disputes um, without any violence, without any conflicts or confrontation. So you don't, the local officials actually don't want farmers going onto the train and jump to Beijing to start protest because their political careers are at stake there. So we are helping the central, not only the uh, local government, also helping the central government to implement national laws on the ground. But when there, whenever there is money at stake, especially a take a land takings case, especially when a developer or local government agency wants to uh, develop a particular parcel of land which happens to be farmland, uh, when money is at stake, uh, it could uh, could become confrontational. But we're not actually asking the farmers to start a protest. We're actually helping the farmers to. Uh, present their claims in front of the court system. So hopefully that will uh, at least resolve some of the cases. There are a lot of additional components uh, needs to be in working to have the whole system working. For example, we're also having a problem in terms of the independency of the court system in China. Uh, we're also having problems in terms of how uh, transparency the court system is. But we're taking, I guess, a first step to the right direction as we go along. Um, the f not only will we provide legal representation, another major function is education. Uh, we send out teams of uh, uh, teachers and lawyers and students to the villages to conduct educational classes to not only teach farmers but also local officials about what rights they are and what law says. Uh, and based on our survey, not only farmers don't know anything about their rights, but local officials don't understand the laws either. So there's a lot of educational service needs to be done uh, before we see a lot of uh, improved rule of law in the countries of China. Question right here. So my name is Feng Xinyuan, Associate Professor 
of Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, Rural Development Institute, so another idea in China. So congratulations first for these two excellent speeches. I also wrote to Zuya. I generally agree to what you proposed in your policy recommendations, but I have some uh, something else in addition. Yeah. Um, so I did some uh, organized some research in cooperation with Cato, uh, led by Dr. Tom Palmer and Jiang uh, Diqin. <laughs> so we our approach is to do some case studies and collect all the best examples. Uh, about how the farmers utilize their u- land use li- rights. For example, some land uh, um, trust a- arrangements uh, or some uh, shareholding system or, or shareholding cooperative systems. Where, uh, I- I- for example, in shareholding uh, systems, uh, farmers, they contribute their land and they don't have to to, to, to manage their land by themselves, but the, the shareholding company, they will do it. Uh, in this way, we find another way uh, to, to, uh, to see, uh, to look here, yeah, how the government and uh, the farmers, the central, local, and the farmers, um, the three sides, they can have a win-win solution. So the farmers... Indeed, through this way, they don't lose their land, but they have a share in a so-called inclusive development. So they participate in development and share the income. So I would uh, ask uh, then a question. Um, uh, so you, you did a so large survey, and uh, then you have these excellent uh, recommendations. There might be some other things in between to reach your recommendations. Can you explain, please? Thank you. Um, yeah, I will give an explanation. If Roy wants to jump in, that's fine. Uh, absolutely, I agree with you in principle there. Um, but there is a cautionary um, note should be made uh, as we do field work in China is also, we didn't cover that in this in, the, in this presentation because uh, because of the time limitation. One of the phenomenon we discovered in recent uh, years is called three concentration in China. Uh, three concentration is a government-sponsored or sanctioned program where the government comes in to uh, pull all the farmland together and also build apartment houses to move the farmers away from their original house into concentrated living apartments so they can pull the resources together. The intentions are good. Uh, but in many cases, those practices and programs are not done um, with the full consent of the farmers. Uh, sometimes the government took the step too far away when farmers are not willing to move away from the home. For example, one of the problems we found is in uh, in Jiangsu, uh, the entire county moved the farmers into concentrated apartments. So we have a large area of not only two hectares but hundreds of hectares of land uh, of farmland, uh, either in the form of land trust or incorporation. But what happens is when the farmers move into a apartment, there are five six stories, and uh, what happens is they don't have any elevators. They don't have 
they cannot carry the rice up to five stories, and they don't have the typically they have a drying ground for the rice. They don't have it anymore. They don't have storage place. So it's it is a good intention program, and I think it will take time to develop the market mechanism as more land trusts and or uh, agriculture co-ops uh, organization to develop in China. Yeah, you know, we we uh, actually looked uh, several years ago in the field at one of the early early stock share programs. That one, uh, and here I think the the consensual issue is is very important. That one uh, was semi consensual. It turned out that the farmers were getting dividends of about ten equal to about ten percent of the profit that the enterprise was making, and they weren't aware of it. For them, the 10% seemed like a lot of money, but they really weren't aware that most of the profit was, was going elsewhere. Uh, I think the, the, and the uh, corporate arrangement that existed was one under which they had essentially no, uh, no owner, no continuing ownership or oversight rights. They couldn't replace directors. They couldn't replace management. And management was dealing with itself uh, in a very, very uh, friendly way uh, with uh, large cars and uh, and uh, luxurious offices and so on. Um, some of those experiments, I think, uh, are, are quite workable if, if there's true consent. Uh, some of them are not. And again, it, it does come back to the fundamental issue of information, publicity, knowledge. If, if, uh, if free and informed consent is given, uh, I think a wide range of of arrangements are possible. Some farmers will choose to farm on a larger scale basis. Some will say, we want to go to the city and work, and so we're quite content to uh, transfer our rights or year by year or the, the entirety even of our rights to some entity that will pay us some guaranteed amount. But the key, again, is that they they have to be the beneficiaries of, of publicity and education. And in a sense, this is, this is a kind of uh, lead program for the bringing of the rule of law generally to the Chinese countryside. If they succeed on this, uh, they're likely to succeed on a whole range of issues where rule of law is central. Uh, so that, again, uh, a fundamental further reason why success in this is so important. Take a question right here. Yeah, Chia Chen, freelance correspondent. The important is uh, uh, two things. First is uh, farmer have to la- have land, and second is this, uh, the rural community have to de- develop. My question is this, uh, Professor Prosman, you said, uh, uh, before law and parties are good, but because of uh, implementation problem. And then they mentioned about some new law. My question basically is this, how to do the implementation? And second is this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this distribution of the wealth between the 
rural and urban have showed twice. And the income disparity like this, a country just won't be stable and sustainable. Uh, so I think you have talked to the, have chance to talk to the uh, uh, Chinese government. Uh, what do they say about this? What they do, going to do about this? And then we just hand out a, a, a paper uh, by uh, Deepak Nay, how China should use its foreign reserve. They have so much money. Why don't they use money to develop the, uh, the rural area and to build a road and have electricity at the school? Then the, uh, then the 60% of the population will uh, have good living and also in turn will make a country further development. Thank you. Uh, well, I, I will. I will start. The uh, uh, yeah. I, I think the the question of uh, providing more general development of the rural sector. A very good example of that in South Korea, which I think the the government in Beijing is also very interested in. They followed their land reform, which was very successful with programs to make sure that there were resources for community development uh, and, and also that there was recognition and award for local officials who were successful uh, in community development. I, th I think that uh, providing additional resources uh, for the, uh, the rural sector uh, is a very important issue. Uh, it's not, uh, I mean, they have, they have in the current uh, stimulus package some measures, but probably not yet enough included. There, there, do keep in mind, most of rural China, for example, in contrast to other places we work, such as, as rural India, most of rural China is electrified. And so most people do have televisions, although they're still largely black and white televisions. A few color televisions are coming in. Uh, the road system, over the 22 years that we've been doing field work in rural China, the road system has improved substantially. So it's, it's now much more possible for someone uh, to grow uh, uh, grapes or... Uh, onions or some high-value crop and market it even to an urban center that's 100 or 200 uh, miles away. Uh, there were several other questions. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you. I'll, I'll just briefly respond to the implementation question is, uh, even though, interestingly, China is a communist country, uh, but it, the central government actually has a really difficult time in uh, telling the local officials to say enforce these policies and this law. And the reason is because of money. Uh, we just one of the fundings we found is um, the compensation in land takings paid to collectives and officials are six times higher than the money paid officials. So one fifth of the money goes to the farmers. What happens to the Fifth, sixth of the money, or the remain the, the majority of the money, 
It goes to the local government. It goes to the local officials. There is huge profits to be made. Um, in recent years, profits made from land takings and land conversions by local government constitutes typically from 30 to 60 percent of local government's re uh, revenue and budget. So there is a huge financial incentive for local governments to stay away, not faithfully carry out the central policies and laws. It is a governance issue. It is a rule of law issue. It will really take some time for the Chinese government to figure out how to put the rural land rights issue on the top of their priority list and get that policies and laws enforced on the ground. In theory, China is a very centralized country, but in practice it's an ungovernable country where every region seems to do uh, all sorts of things and then uh, the experiments that work are eventually adopted at the central level. And I think that this is part of what uh, you explain in, in your paper with regards to land rights. We'll take a question over here. Uh, Di Cheng and then... Thank you very much, Di Qingjiang. Cato Institute or Atlas Research, uh, uh, Research Foundation. And uh, I'm the editor of your essays, uh, the paper in Chinese. I'm so glad to, I'm so, feel so honored to edit these essays. I just uh, asked some questions uh, when I read this, you know, uh, this uh, brilliant as a report. I, I found that, um, first thing I think I want to add some background. Uh, Professor Postman mentioned about uh, uh, Taiwan and the success of Taiwan, North, uh, South Korea's success, uh, the land reform. I completely agree with. I really appreciate the the Taiwan and the South Korea's land reform. But the one thing in China is different. That is just that the lady mentioned that the Chinese uh, right now the Chinese farmers the, the the size is too small. Not just too small, but also they divide into different pieces. And for example. Uh, in 1984, when China, the, the agriculture ministry uh, did some survey in China, maybe this surveyed maybe thousands of farmers, the average farm size is about uh, uh, a bit more than uh, one, uh, one a half uh, hectare. That's, that's right. And also, not just the small size, but also this small size of farm, they just uh, far, uh, agriculture field, they divide into 10 pieces. That looks like uh, the Russian commune, not just like uh, Taiwan's, you know, <laughs> land reform, you know. It's different. Why is it, why Chinese people do that? Because they want to pursue the equality. Because the, they will divide the land in terms of the, the good land, the bad land, the, 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 the world feels something about that. Is that what? So the problem right now in China, I, I, I met some farmers in China. They told me I have six or eight pieces of land. Every day I will walk one or two miles to plant lands everywhere. This is not a physical exercise. Is that right? This is just waste a lot of time, waste a lot of labor. So the problem is not to end the readjustment. The problem is that how to promote readjustment to make the land counter changing and promote the land use efficiency. That's what happened in China. And you may... Uh, 
this problem. One problem is another thing that uh, you, you just a uh, professor, you mentioned about uh, right now China has 700, 750 million farmers in, in the in the rural area. It's uh, I, I don't know whether how could you get this figure? Is this figure determined? Uh, is uh, just uh, uh, defined by the household registration system or just uh, by the other kind of source? I, I don't know that. And uh, also, uh, and I really appreciate that you launch a program about uh, the the law education uh, program in China to tell the farmers how to pr protect their land rights. But to me, another problem is that uh, I visited Shandong or the other area. I found uh, not just uh, the law, but also the problem is about uh, explanation and also some national law conflict with the local customer. I, I mentioned one thing about them. Uh, you mentioned about uh, the woman should uh, take the equal land rights in the rural area. That's, that's a great idea. But problem that's in the in many rural areas, the problem is that um, the, the woman, their daughter, they just married. They just left their agriculture, uh, their, their village. Then the, only the son, they serve the, the elder, their, their parents. So, in, so when, when the woman, they share the, the equal land, that means the woman also, the, their daughter also should serve the their parents equal, is that right? But uh, this conflict with the Chinese tradition, with Chinese customer. So how to explain this? And also another thing that uh, I found a lot of Chinese lawyers, they, people, they found the national law is often conflicts with the local law. So the problem that the, the, the lawyer should explain what's the difference and which one is better and how to persuade the judge to, to choose which is the best Explanation for, for, for the law. That's uh, another, just another gentleman mentioned that uh, may, maybe this essay or this project should have submitted to Chinese government to, to persuade them to do something about that. I really appreciate that. I talked to a lot of Chinese, uh, reading scholars, some, someone about that. But the problem that everyone, even including me, just uh, think about one question. 100 years ago, Storeping, he, the Russian Prime Minister, he adopted such a law. He said, I should privatize, privatize the, the, the agricultural land. This joined the commune. It's a really, really increase, increased the, the land use efficiency. It's no problem. But the problem is that the, 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 Soviet, the Bolshevik revolution came in 1917. So, it's not the, the top to down revolution maybe is good, but we still should think about a lot of things about in not, in, you know, for example, the inequality. And uh, if there's so many people, they, they just sell, sell their land, they go to the rural uh, open area. How could it help them to find a job or something about that? That's a really tough issue. Thank you very much, sir. Should I, uh, uh, one or a couple of fairly basic points. One, one is in terms of saying that it's too small, the farms are too small. Uh, we, we need to keep in mind, I think, that land reform or land tenure reform neither creates nor destroys land. It simply puts an existing agricultural population into a relationship with an existing land base that is more equitable and productive than the relationship that existed prior to that. And there are a number of things one would do if one could wave a magic wand, but there is no such magic wand. So uh, in, in terms, for example, of the issue of land consolidation, that is taking a farmer who has 
six or eight different pieces of land and turning that into a single consolidated piece of land. Now, that's not readjustment, by the way. Uh, I, I, readjustment is a term of art which refers to a system under which the cadre generally involuntarily uh, take farmers' land away and reallocate it in new configurations based on changes in either uh, village population size or individual household population size since the previous readjustment, and it creates enormous insecurity for the farmers, and the farmers don't like it. Uh, consolidation is another kettle of fish, and consolidation is possible. Taiwan, for example, has been carrying out a policy of land consolidation, but it's completely voluntary, uh, and it's very expensive, and they've been able to consolidate about 1% of their arable land a year over a 40-year period while they've been carrying it out. So it's something, it's, it's, it's nice in theory, but it would be very important that it be done voluntarily because it, I mean, it, it, it could easily become uh, a source of rent-seeking or corruption for local officials. I can easily imagine local officials in many places in China saying, we're going to consolidate your parcels, and oh, we are then going to uh, purport to lease them to our cousin from the next village over, and he will end up with 50% uh, of the village land. And there has been uh, a very worrisome process of outside boss contracting where that, in effect, has been done. Cadre have grabbed farmers' land and turned it over to outsiders, uh, enraging the villagers. And this another source of insecurity, uh, upset, and discontent. And certainly the question of instability and of carrying out measures that are advertent to the actual facts on the ground and farmers' actual attitudes and hopes uh, that that is very important for the maintenance of long-term stability uh, in in rural China. Uh, and I think I'll let you add. There was, a, there was a question on what I thought was an interesting question on the conflict between local customs and national law. And uh, I wondered if anybody, if any of you want to comment on that, because at the very least, even if it's a good idea or a bad idea what you're proposing, if there's a conflict, you have the issue of how to enforce it. Um, I would just use the example of how local custom interacts with law in terms of on, on the issue of women's land rights. Uh, the law specifically provides two things in China. One is... Uh, a married woman has the same equal right, land rights to land as her husband. This is the first rule. The second law is a married out daughter, uh, because in his, in her parents, in her native village, she will re uh, presumably will receive, receive some land share. But after she marries out to a different village, uh, that daughter, that married out wife, should receive a new land share in her husband's village. If she doesn't receive a new land share in her husband's village, she does not have to return that his original share back to the village where her parents live. 
those are the two laws. But in practice here, because of the customary practice we just talked about in, in China, uh, because of the not only by people but also by the government, uh, in land documents we don't very rarely see women's or the wife's name appearing on any land documents. As well, we have also had cases in China where the daughter who married out of the village sue, bring a lawsuit against her parents. And the reason why, because the law says she should maintain her old land share because she doesn't, she didn't, well, for some reason, she didn't receive a new land share in her husband's village. Uh, the, actually, there are several uh, legal cases being reported on the issue because uh, it happens that the, her parents' land is being taken by the government for some development project. So there is compensation paid to the, paid to the family including that a daughter's land share has been taken as well. So there's presumably there's compensation paid to the daughter's share. However, the family as well as the village firmly believes that married out daughter is not a member of that family or village anymore, even though the law says otherwise. And that's why we have several lawsuits reported in China. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, the judge ruled actually in favor of the daughter because the law is indisputable. Uh, this is one thing, but the enforcement of the judge's order is a different matter as how they get the money back. Okay, we have time for at least one more question, and we'll take it uh, over here. No, sir, it has nothing to do <laughs> A lot more. Uh, a lot of other people were raising their hand before you. My question you, is sir. short. If that's if you it. want, we can have you. No, we'll give no, you I, preference. You know Just go along with your, uh, your agenda. Uh, my agenda. Yes, okay. Uh, Dan Pearson, U.S. International Trade Commission. In recent decades, there's been a significant movement of people from rural areas to urban areas to seek economic opportunity. If land rights are changed, as you're suggesting, so that there would be an ability to buy, sell, rent land, would that speed or slow down the movement of people to urban areas? I think it's a very good question. I think that what it would do or what, and what it is doing to the extent that it, it's, it's the case today uh, is improve the quality of urbanization so that one had uh, much more, let's say, pull urbanization and much less push urbanization, the distinction has been made between the kind of urbanization that results from desperate poverty in the rural sector where you end up going not because there are any clear opportunities, but because you think things can't be any worse and you go essentially with just the clothes on your back. That's happened on a large scale in Brazil and Pakistan to some degree in India and many other countries. Much better is the sort of pull urbanization where people go when they really have an opportunity and preferably when they go as those who have valuable assets in the rural sector to backstop them or give them a cushion, land being the principal such asset. For those who now do have land that they can transact and get a decent rent from, and say it's still a 
minority, but it's growing. Uh, it, it makes the process of urbanization a, a much more voluntary and uh, humane sort of process. Uh, I think we will, well, and, and the, the law, the, the, the 2002 rural land contracting law very importantly says that if you, if, if, if you move to the city, you don't lose your land rights unless the entire family moves to a multi-district city and trades uh, and, and uh, changes to uh, urban registration. And even then, you don't lose your land rights if you have transacted them prior to that move. So if you've assigned the entirety of your term or if you've leased, you continue to collect the... Uh, the rent, or you continue to enjoy the money that you receive for the assignment, and your assignee continues to hold uh, without uh, problems the land that you had uh, assigned to them. So the law really is quite favorable to the use of land rights as an asset to support urbanization. It would be interesting to do a specific a round of field work that was aimed excuse me that was aimed particularly at households or individuals who had traveled to the cities uh, at various times with or without knowledge of what their land rights are and also be very interesting to interview those returning now in these bad economic times and about uh, uh, various estimates suggest that perhaps 10% or more have now returned the village. And fortunately, the law is clear, and most farmers do know this aspect of the law, that a single individual going to the city does not in any case lose their land rights, that those remain in place for them, so they are a protection if they decide to return. Thanks very much. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Please help me uh, in thanking both of our speakers today.